This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you want to listen to this episode or any of our episodes ad-free, you can do that now. Head on over to Patreon. Click on the ad-free level. You get all of our bonus shows that you've been hearing so much about. Plus, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you can listen to this episode or any of our other episodes at the same time, ad-free, over on Patreon. Hey everyone, this is David. Welcome back behind the velvet rope. Let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one, the only Miss Fernalis. Good morning. Hello. How are you? What is going on? You're right down the street in Southampton. Yep. Yep. I'm in beautiful Southampton looking out at my beautiful lake and it's a gorgeous day today. It is so nice out. Well, I have to say first off, congratulations on this new book. I'm going to hold it up because I was at your book signing this weekend. Listen, Fashion Icons 2, Fashion Lives with Fern Malice. This is like, look at this. This is a really substantial book, people. It's heavy. It's like 400 pages. I am like, I started diving into it over the weekend. So, I mean, congratulations. Who did you you dive into? Where did you start? You know, I've been at so many of your talks at the 92nd Street Y. So I like, you know, like the Tim Gunn, you know who doesn't love a little Tim Gunn? And that was really a very personal talk. Yes. I mean, this book, I mean, it's true. This book came together through COVID, right? Like you people were in COVID, didn't know what to do. And you said, let me write a second book. Yeah, it was either that or learn how to make sourdough bread. At least now you have this wonderful book. I mean, it was seven years. Was this process, you know, seven years later from Fashion Icons, one different for you? Um, You know, slightly different, but... You know, the basic premise was absolutely the same. You know, we just had to tighten up some things and and 
you know, I had some good help with some of the some of the fine tuning of it and the licensing and getting all the great pictures that we got. Uh, but it's basically the same the same way to do it, and it's going to be the same way to do book three and book four. You know, we're going to have to start on three pretty quickly. It's I, I, I'm ready for book three. So listen, reinvention is such a common theme in this book, and like being someone who's reinvented myself as well. You know, you talk about the time in your life, like after the tents at Bryant Park, you know, when you went into that coffee period, as you call it, you say, you know, you just wanted to take a minute out in your life and just have some coffee and, you know, relax. And everyone started asking you to go to coffee. And then, you know, you didn't really, you weren't really looking for your next thing. So how did that coffee period lead to these iconic talks at the 92nd Street Y? Well, it was a funny time in my life because I actually did get to take some time off and spend it here. And I wasn't sure what was next. I mean, I had had one of the best jobs in the whole entire fashion industry, you know, 20 years of running Fashion Week and the tents and, and, and not only the tents, but then ten, the last 10 years with IMG as senior VP of fashion, I was traveling the world as their Fashion Week ambassador, you know, so make doing Fashion Weeks in Berlin and in, and in India. And I was going to Mumbai a couple of times a year. Um, we bought fashion weeks in Moscow and Toronto and everywhere, you know, so I was this global ambassador traveling like crazy, you know, and I thought at the end of that, how, what do I do next? Do I work for a designer? Like one designer when I feel like I've worked for all the designers? Um, I really didn't, didn't, didn't know. So I really took the time to try and just chill. And I honestly believe the universe delivers, you know, if you've just always done a good job and done things correctly, it all comes together. And so then I entered what, as you referred to, the coffee phase of my life. All of a sudden the phone starts ringing. Can I take you out for a cup of coffee? I have an idea. I have a, I have a new project starting up. Can I meet you for a cup of coffee? Somebody said that you'd be the perfect consultant for what I'm doing. I, can, I, can we meet for a cup of coffee? And I was going crazy. I said, nobody wanted to buy me lunch or dinner. They just all wanted coffee. And so, you know, you listen to all these ideas and they're like paper towels thrown at the ceiling and some of them stick and most of them fall right down. Um, but yeah. luckily over a cup of tea with my good friend, Timothy Greenfield Sanders, who's an extraordinary photographer and, and documentarian in his studio way down on the Lower East Side, he said, you know, I'm gonna introduce you to a friend of mine, Betsy Berg. And, and he said, I, I know she's gonna have something good for you to, you know, to do. And so Betsy and I spoke, had lunch. It was a good start. And then she said, you know what? I'm going to introduce you to Susan Engel, who lives in my building. She heads up all the talk programming at the 92nd Street Y. I said, great. I love the 92nd Street Y because I've been going there my whole life as a New Yorker, listening to unbelievable people speak. And, you know, this, the speaker bureau there is one of the most exciting ones in the world you know, prime ministers, um, presidents, authors, actors, everybody's there. Yeah. And so Susan said, we want to do something with fashion. She said, we've always done one-offs, you know, here and there, but nothing consistent. And it's such an important part of the culture of New York. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. I said, you know, I usually ask the question. I usually am the one getting interviewed, but I guess I can put together some intelligent questions. And Fashion Icons with Fern Malice was born. You know, she said, who do you, do you think you can get some good people? 
well, you know, if you look at the cover of book one, you know, it was great. Yes, we started with Norma Kamali and then Calvin Klein. And Calvin really opened the floodgates for other people to say, this is for real. You know, and then it was Donna and, and Tom Ford and Mark Jacobs and Michael Kors and, you know, Andre Leontelli, Vera Wang. I mean, you name them, they were all in the... And we held up the printing of the first book for the Bill Cunningham interview. Wow. Do you have memories, you know, your first interview, Norma Kamali, when you think back to that, do you have vivid memories of that interview? Oh, I absolutely do. Because it was a pouring rainy night and we were afraid nobody was going to show up, but they did. And Norma was wearing something a little spark, a little silvery. And we were in the Buttonweiser venue, which is the upstairs venue at, at the 92Y. And we didn't have all that perfect lighting and filming perfected, which we did subsequently. And I started her talk with, I had a handful of index cards and I kept, you know, shuffling them around. And I realized that I talked too much about at the beginning about all her awards and all her you know, accomplishments instead of like, who cares about all the awards, you know, at the end of the day, let's just let you talk about the accomplishments. Um, but Norma and I are friends for over 40 years. So it was a comfortable, very loving, friend, loving conversation. And it was like watching two friends and, you know, on your sofa, having, having a chat. Um, but I totally, after that, realized I'm doing the questions differently and I organized them differently. And now I put them in a, you know, in a spiral bound, you know, book and turn it so I don't lose track of anything. And I know where to jump ahead and move through it. Um, but we learned, I learned a lot from doing the first one. And, and, and that series really was a big part of reinventing my life. Well, you've done 61 at this point. So like that in and of itself is just such an accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Let's talk about some of, like I said, I've actually attended a lot in this book, Christian Siriano, Billy Porter. Let's talk about Tim Gunn, who I mentioned, I mean, what do you remember from that chat? Like, I mean, I remember it was just so personal and he opened up about, you know, a suicide attempt in high school and just like struggling with his sexuality. Well, I think Tim was very, um, he was very honest and he was very forthright. I mean, I've, I've known Tim since he was, you know, you know, the Dean at Parsons um, before Project Runway even became something uh, that really launched his career. I mean, all of a yeah. sudden here, here he was at the school and they, I, I mean, who would have thought, talk about reinvention, boy, that, that's the, that takes the cake. But um, uh, Tim is just, he's such an honorable, classic, classy man. You know, he's very, you know, I don't want to say uptight, but, you know, suited and really sartorial. And, you know, so for him to start talking about those personal issues, uh, we're very, we're very special, you know, and it was very, I think he said several times, I, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. I've never told anybody this. And that's one of the hallmarks of the series. People all of a sudden open up and they almost always say either, how did you find that out? Or how did you know that? Or I'm going to tell you things I've never told anybody. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I don't really like dwelling on the suicide because I think, you know, I want Tim to be known more for all of the, the great advice and counsel he's given everybody and the encouragement and how many careers he's helped to launch. Yeah. But, but, you know, his story is relevant to a lot of people in the world, you know, the, the coming out stories, you know. 
Do you have a favorite interview? I mean, people ask me that all the time. Like, is there one or two that just stand out for you? Well, what do you say when they ask you that? I do have favorites, but, you know, I love them all. But I mean, I, you know, there's just certain people, you know, I think it's different because I do like a wide range of categories and music and fashion. So you just kind of have people that you're like, wow, how, how am I talking to this person? Right. Well, you know, when I get asked that question, which, as you say, I get asked a lot, um, you know, when I was at CFDA and people would ask me, who's my favorite designer, I would always take the Madeleine Albright route and say, you know, I'm, I'm a diplomat. I love them all. You know, I didn't want to show favoritism. Um, but I, to be perfectly honest from my interviews, Bill Cunningham really ranks um, probably at the top because he's such an extraordinary loved, loved man in the industry. I've known him my whole professional career. And he's just a private person who doesn't talk, doesn't like to talk, um, you know, and how I got him to be there is a, is a wonderful, remarkable story, which um, I don't know if you know that, how it happened, but no. shall, shall I tell yes. you how it happened? Yes, please do. Uh, well, when the series started, Bill was always on my hit list. Like, Bill, we've got to do this. You know, you have to be part of this. And he's come to some of them. And, he's, and he'd always say, okay, child, yes, child. You know, he calls everybody child. And, and then, you know, in the middle of a sentence, he'd just flit away because he sees a picture to take. So I, I could never get him to commit. He'd always kind of humor me about it. This went on, uh, this was a, a dance between us for years. And then finally, one day he said to me, because I never stopped asking. And he said, you know, I sent you a letter why I won't do this why I won't do the why. And I said, you did, where did you send that? And he said, I don't remember. Great. Next time I saw him at some party somewhere outside shooting, he came up rushing over to me and he said, I remember I sent the letter to the 92nd shoot, why? So I said, okay, I'll track it down. And I did track it down. And it was a beautiful letter handwritten by him with a very old fashioned, you know, cursive handwriting. You have to read each word a few times to make sure you're getting it right. Yeah. And he talked about how much he loves me and would do anything for me, but how he did not ever see the documentary of his life. You know, he felt like he was tricked into doing it because of his respect for Arthur Sulzberger at the times. And he said, you know, it, it changed his life because he wants to be the quiet guy on the street, just taking the pictures. The film made him a celebrity and people would stop and talk to him. And he's not a chatter chatterbox he doesn't want to talk to people he just wants to do his thing and move effortlessly in and out of places and so you know he we talked about and I said Bill next time I saw him I said I got your letter and I understand and I respect you and love you too much to keep bugging you so our loss but you know I got you well several months later I got off a plane at five o'clock in the morning from one of my trips to India to Mumbai Fashion, Lakme Fashion Week in India. And I was, that night was the CFDA awards at Avery Fisher Hall at, no, at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center. And I was there wearing this really beautiful kind of saffron colored chiffon tunic, um, caftan layered. And I'm standing at the cocktail party talking to him as I often do. And he was standing and he's always whispering in my ear. And he said, he turned to take a picture and his elbow knocked the vodka and 
soda that I was drinking poured all over the front of my, my dress. He was catatonic. Oh my God, I've never done that in 40 years. I can't believe it. What can I get you a new outfit? And I said, Bill, I just come off the plane from India. No, he said, I'll have it. Can I dry clean it? I said, Bill, it's vodka. It will dry. And I was fanning myself with the program. And I said to him, if it was red wine, I'd kill you. And he just would not leave my side. I said, Bill, go take your pictures. I'll be fine. Go do your work. He said, I feel so bad. I feel so bad. I'll do anything. What do you, what can I do? And I looked at him and I said, will you do the 92Y? And he looked at me and he said, yes. Wow. And I said, I'm calling you in the morning to make sure you remember that, that you said yes. And it was epic. I mean, it was epic because he is such a loved man and has so many stories. And um, everybody who was at that one said, said the same thing, that they'll never forget that night. He cried several times. He gets very emotional. Um, you know, he talked about the Battle of Versailles and that being his favorite fashion show in the world. And he was amazing. Wow. Yeah, and he doesn't do a lot of interviews and he's really a man of very few words, like you said. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I know you guys love listening to my five-day-a-week celebrity interview podcast, but guess what? I found another podcast that interviews even bigger names and does so way more professionally than I do. Honestly, they do. Listen, it's called The Envelope. It's a celebrity guest podcast from the LA Times. That's right, LA Times, guys. And they cover award seasons in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. The first six episodes are available to binge now. That's right, right now. And let me tell you about these guests. I am so jealous. Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Jennifer Coolidge, David Harbour from Stranger Things, Jessica Biel. Oh, and they get so deep and in-depth with their interviews. They really go there. Listen, these six episodes kept me so happy. Six hours of pure bliss. So listen, download and listen to the latest episodes of The Envelope anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can thank me later. Happy listening. Oh my God, I have to tell you guys about So Lean, So Clean. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I've been trying to lose weight this summer and I wanted something, it's really simple. I wanted something that was high protein, low carbs, and low sugar. I mean, I also wanted something that tasted great. And that's when I discovered So Lean, So Clean. So Lean, So Clean is a clean plant-based protein powder. I personally use it after my workout. I use it sometimes to make shakes and smoothies. It has 21 grams of protein per serving 
zero grams of sugar, and the carbs are between one and four grams. It comes unflavored in vanilla and chocolate, but let me tell you, the vanilla chai, oh my God. But look, don't take my word for it. Solene So Clean, which is from the brand Aura, they have over 10 thousand five star reviews from happy online customers. Do you know how hard that is? And there's no risk. You can try Aura's products. And if you're not happy for any reason, within 30 days, you get a full refund. You get 30% off your first subscription when you text ROPE to 64,000. Text ROPE, R-O-P-E, to 64,000 and get 30% off your first subscription. That's ROPE to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. Terms apply. Available at Aura Organic slash terms. You know how on a recent episode of Girls Trip, Brandy Glanville was talking about pleasuring herself and Vicki Gumbelson and Dorinda Medley, mm, they weren't really into that. I think Dorinda actually said she doesn't like to pleasure herself. Well, listen, I am going to send Dame products to Vicki and to Dorinda, and I guarantee you they're going to change their tune. Dame products are thoughtfully engineered toys. Yes, that's right. Great vibrators and other sex toys for women. There's discreet shipping, hassle-free returns, and you know what? A whole lot of fun. I guarantee you Vicky and Dorinda would have fun if I sent them Dame products. And what should I pick out for them? The Eva, that's really their first and most iconic product. It's a hands-free couples vibrator. Look, Vicky's got her new boyfriend, right? So the Eva would be perfect. And then there's the Air. It's a suction vibrator and it's designed to get you there. Get it? They have massage oils. They have everything at Dame. So go to dameproducts.com and use code VELVETROPE for, wait for it, 15% off. That's VELVETROPE. That's the code. Go to Dame Products and you get 15% off your first order. And you know what? Hey, once you get yours, reach out to Vicky and Dorinda and ask them if they're enjoying yours. You guys can compare notes, have fun. And and one of the other ones I really, I really, really enjoyed. And well, I, like you said, I love so many, all of them are great. You know, Victoria Beckham, um, you know, Valentino, Tom Ford. I mean, all of them were so good. But Leonard Lauder also stands out to me. Because he is such an extraordinary, classy man who's built clearly an unbelievable business. You know, started with his, his mom doing her, her thing in, in Queens in their kitchen. You know, I love the stories. Almost everybody I've spoken to was not handed a silver spoon to take over daddy or mommy's company. They all started with nothing and had a passion and a dream and made it to being a millionaire and a billionaire you know, doing what they're doing. But Leonard has has run an amazing company with, and he's so supportive of women. I mean, he has so many women executives and women employees. And he, you know, he, he says, don't ever make an important business decision without a woman at the table, right. which is a great line. You know, and I said to him, I said, you know, Leonard, your business, you have so many great women working there and they're all competitors. They're all competing for the same dollar you know, for the same success. I said, but they all get along and they all play in the same sandbox and they all respect each other. And I said, and that's because of your leadership. It starts from the top. That is true. Do you have like a hit list? Like, you know, you know, who do you want that you haven't, that is still, does anyone say no to Fern these days? Yes. Some people say no. Carolina Herrera, who I, who I, I stalk her. I mean, I love her to death. And have known her as well for so long. 
and and she loves me. We have a great relationship. But you know, when I asked, and she's come to she's come to quite a few of the, the ninety two Y. She was at the Bill Cunningham one, oh, wow. and this is a funny story. She said the first time she came to one, she got in her car and told the driver going to the ninety second Street Y, and he said, "Mrs. Herrera, that's one block away," because so, she lives like on Fifth or Park in nineties ninety first, I think. Wow. And so I said, did you still take the car? She goes, of course. Um, but she says, then it's too personal, too personal. And I said, but I'll, we'll work around it. You know, we'll, I'll, I, I don't have to say the really deep rooted, whatever you, you know, you don't want to want to talk about. But right. she la- she sees me and she laughs. You know, she sees me. She goes, no, 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 no. And the other one that is killing me is Ralph Lauren. I mean, Ralph did a beautiful forward in the first book. Yeah. Um, you know, we have history together working on Fashion Target's breast cancer and other projects. Um, but, you know, he, he and his team has always said, okay, you know, we'll, you know, we'll let us think about it for 10 years. You know, it's like, let us think about it, you know. So then they still say it's, it's not a done deal. So I hope springs eternal. Listen, you got Bill Cunningham, so anything is possible. Correct. There you go. Well, you know, before I would like to talk more about the book, but we also need to talk about your iconic career in fashion. You know, growing up, like, how did you, was it always fashion for you? Like, where did this start? Um, I grew up in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was a hot place to grow up in. And my dad was in the garment center. He was a salesman for women's scarves. His brothers were all salesmen for different uh, sportswear and textiles. And I just loved going to work with my father any day off from school or holiday. You know, we'd take the bus to the subway and go into Manhattan and I'd watch him schmooze these fashion directors and buyers from the stores and charm them because those salesmen in those days were all really charming guys. A word you don't hear very often today. You know, wow. he was charming and smart and they always had great jokes and, you know, and always took them out to lunch and I'd go to lunch with him and his buyer and, you know, in a fancy restaurant and learn how to order, you know, fancy food. And I'd go to the art department and watch the ladies drawing and paisleys and painting everything before they had CAD computer systems. And, you know, and I saw that this was a, a great career for women. And I just really, I, I mean, I loved clothing and I was voted best dressed in my high school, which you know, I had to live up to that status. Um, and that's how it all started. My dad also would always bring women's wear daily home from work every, every day. And I would literally like in high school, read women's wear and get a sense of what was going on. And I'd listen in on his conversations with his brothers or other people. So you kind of get that in your, in your DNA a little bit without even knowing it, you kind of right. have the industry in your blood. And mm. Right. What did the early days of like you being in the industry, like those lean years, those early years, like what did that look like for you? Well, my first job was at Mademoiselle magazine, uh, which was a Condé Nast magazine. And in my era, it was in fact, one of the most fabulous magazines ever. It's just kills me that that one was, you know, was let go and shut down. Um, But I got to Mademoiselle by winning a contest when I was in college. I joined the Mademoiselle College Board, which was, you know, you fill out an application in the magazine and send it in and 
you get a nice fancy letter, you know, you're part of the college board. And then they would send you packages and mail to, to kind of critique like a, like a sounding board, a, you know, a focus group, uh, of certain products from advertisers and other ideas. And so they would be getting the college girls' opinion on stuff, which was right. very, very smart of them. And then to elevate and move up the ladder in this competition, you had to design a garment or something in graphics or poetry or literature, photography, all the different, different categories that the magazine was known for. And so I did something because I was studying fine graphics and communication. And next thing I knew, I got a call from somebody at the magazine that there was going to be an editor in the, in the area in Buffalo where I was at school. And would I meet her and take her around? And I didn't know at the time, but I was being interviewed all day. Right. You know, and and I, was, uh, I was selected to be a guest editor, which is one of 20 girls at the time brought to New York for the month of June to guest edit their, um, I, I used to say the September issue was the August issue and it's the back to school issue. And that was when they had back to school departments and department stores. You know, now people just buy a new hoodie and they're fine for school. Right. And that was an extraordinary experience. It was a month long. I was the guest art editor. Uh, we went to Israel on a trip and, you know, got to meet all sorts of incredible people. And, and then they offered me a permanent job, the only one um, of my group of 20. And if that contest existed today, it would be like some of the things you do. You know, it would be a reality TV show with 20 girls living in some high rise in New York, all competing for the job in the fashion industry or trying to meet, you know, the cool photographer or, you know, hot guy, you know, it would have been a great reality show, but that was way too early. <laughs> well, that is definitely a show that I would watch. Let me just say that. Well, during your career, you know, you served as the executive director for CFDA from 91 to 2001. And during that tenure in 1993, you came up with 7th on 6, which has turned into the iconic New York Fashion Week. Is this true that this idea came to you because you attended a Michael Kors show and the roof fell in on Naomi and Cindy Crawford and all these models that we know and love so much? Well, basically, that is absolutely the truth. Um, it wasn't necessarily my idea to start with. Uh, when I joined the CFDA as executive director, I joined at the end of March in 91. And it, I, was, I was selected and um, honored with the position on my birthday at a big board meeting with every designer around the table. Um, and then the next two weeks was basically market week, which is also slash fashion week. And at that time, if there were 50 fashion shows in New York, they were in 50 different locations. Nobody talked to each other. If your show was downtown or uptown, the east side or the west side, nobody cared who was before and who was after. Nobody cared about making it easier for the buyers and the editors to get from one place to another. You know, if you had a show in the Plaza Hotel, you know, at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, you had to strike it because somebody was having a bar mitzvah there that night. You know, and if then if you wanted to do it the next day, you'd have to pay all over again for all the equipment. So it was it was not cost effective and not 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 effective just in general. And so Michael Kors had a show in in an empty lofty space in um, in Chelsea, a concrete raw space. Designers love raw concrete spaces. And when the bass bass, bass music went on, as you know, is very loud. 
And if things aren't nailed down, they tend to shake. Well, this time the ceiling shook and plaster literally came down on the runway onto Naomi, Cindy, Linda, Claudia, all the, Michael always had the best girls in the show and to this day still has the best models. And they just brushed it off. They paid the big bucks and kept walking. But when the plaster landed in Susie Menkes's lap in the front row from the International Herald Tribune and Carrie Donovan, who was the fashion critic for the New York Times. And I found out years later that it broke Carrie's Chanel lipstick that she had in her bag. And that was a custom made color for her that they didn't make anymore. So she was furious. Um, and they wrote the next day that we live for fashion. We don't want to die for it. And I said, I think my job description just changed. And it became a mission to find spaces that were convenient, that would organize, centralize, and modernize the shows. You guys know I work from home. And because of that, I travel a lot and I'm never in one place for very long. And that's why when it came to my mental health, the only option I could see was Talkspace. Talkspace is kind of like having a therapist in your pocket. I personally, and you too, can reach out to your therapist or psychiatrist anytime from anywhere. And it just makes taking care of mental health so easy. When I'm away and I need to talk to my therapist, I just send a message from wherever, you know, I can work through things. It's so easy. You can sign up online and basically start therapy the same day you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's just easy. It's convenient. It's literally like you don't have to leave your home. And it's also, I mean, this is the greatest part, I think. Well, one of the greatest parts, it's affordable. It's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages 24 seven, they'll engage with you literally, you know, any day. So listen, as a listener of this podcast, you get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code VELVET to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show, right? That's nice. That's VELVET and Talkspace.com. Look, I'm going to be honest, finding that balance between too high and not high enough, it's tough. Come on. I'm sure you've all had that problem, right? Well, listen, not anymore. Diet Smoke has formulated the perfect high. I mean, look, sometimes you're not high enough and that sucks because like the world is really effing stressful and you just need to escape life's problems, right? Then other times I find, well, like now I'm too high and I have to do the Behind the Velvet Row podcast five days a week for all of you. So the balance is what I strive for. I know it's what all of you strive for. And listen, Diet Smoke has formulated the perfect high. Here's the thing. Their Delta 8 gummy gives you a beautiful balanced buzz every time. They are so freaking good. And if you're looking for something a little bolder, Diet Smoke's Delta 9 gummies are for you. The flavors, watermelon, peach. There's so many options. My personal favorite, blue raspberry. Yeah, you get that high and you have that blue raspberry going on. Oh my God. And you don't need a medical card or license to order Diet Smoke. Hello, hallelujah. They're so confident in their product that if you're not 100% satisfied, they will give you your money back. No questions asked. Okay, so head over to dietsmoke.com and use code VELVET for 15% off your first order. That's promo code VELVET at dietsmoke.com for 15% off your first order. Now let's get that perfect high on babe. So that's great. You come up with that idea. Now, how do we make that happen? I mean, it's, you know, this is, was it dialing for dollars? Like how it's a great idea for him, but how does this come to fruition? Totally dialing for dollars. You got that right. Um, the industry and the designers 
they look like they're extravagant, but they don't want to spend a lot of money on their shows. You know, they only, the biggest chunk of money they spend on is the models, I think. And, you know, so uh, it was my job. I was looking around at every empty space in New York, every empty building, every empty parking lot. You know, where could we put something like this to happen? Um, but at CFDA, when we talked about wanting to do this and pre presenting the idea and concept to the membership, um, people were a little reticent because people don't like doing things necessarily. Like every designer wants their own space that's individual to them. You know, and I would say, hey, stupid, it's about the clothes. Um, and so CFDA sent me to Europe and I went to Paris and to Milan to see the shows. Uh, and I came back with full R&D report and then literally sat down one-on-one -on -one with Calvin Klein, with Ralph Lauren, with Donna, with all the top people and said, you have to get out of these spaces you're in. We have to do this together. And so we got a consensus to do it. We hired somebody to start to produce, you know, a, a budget of what it would, you know, what, how do we do this? I had somebody working literally in the, in a closet space in my office in 1412 Broadway. And, and, and then, then I started dialing for dollars because we had to pay for it. And so the first person that came on board was through a friend of mine who was the publisher at Harper's Bazaar at the time. And she said, you have to meet uh, Mark Rodriguez was the chairman of uh, Evian Water. He was newly installed there. And I met and talked to Mark. And that's when there used to just be Perrier and Evian on the shelves, not 30 different water brands. Right. And he was looking to rebrand their water and take it out of just sports or wherever people were using bottled water. And he said, let's do it. So he said, how much is it? And I, I had no idea, honestly. I said, $100,000. And he said, great signed on board. The next person that came up, I called Hannah Wintour at Vogue and explained what we were doing, basically explained it over the phone to her, you know, ultimately then went into the office much later with plans to just share with her everything. But I, she said, how much money do you need? And I said, I don't know, maybe a half a million dollars. And she said, let me get back to you. And she called Cy Newhouse, her boss, and Literally, I think by the end of that day, called me back and said, we'll give you $100,000. So I said, great. So 100 became the target number. We have to, Vogue said, okay, I called the, the president of Hearst. And I said, Vogue is giving us $100,000. He said, okay, Bazaar will give you $100,000. Then I called the president of Hachette Philippaki for L. And he goes, okay, L will give you 100. You know, it was, I could, I was, Every day in the office going, ka-ching, got another one. Ka-ching, we got another one. Wow. And then Hearst called back and said, could we add town and country? And I said, absolutely. And then I called friends at Clairol because um, I was trying to find American companies that would be supportive of the American collections and people who benefit from this being organized. So Clairol came on board. I called Jane Huddis, who was Jane Hertzmark. Um, she was my, an assistant of mine for six years early on in her career. She's now the global group president of Estee Lauder. She's probably the most successful woman in the cosmetic industry. She was heading up prescriptives at the time. I said, Janie, let's do this with your new brand prescriptives. And she got a hundred thousand dollars, you know, and then, and then I called my favorite is I called General Motors. And I said, can I, I was like Michael Moore. Can I speak to the president? 
They said, okay, they send you through to the office. The secretary picks up and I told her what we're doing. She said, what a good idea. She said, can you send us some information and ultimately sent her, sent them the information and we got General Motors as a sponsor. Um, and that's how it started. And then we created this village of tents, you know, and put packages together, created a press list of everybody coming, what hotels they were staying at so people can, designers can send the invitations to them. I mean, we came up with so many things that everybody just takes for granted now, but at the beginning, you had to think of how to do that. What, yeah. what works? You know, we had great bags that Carlos Falci used to make for us, filled with sponsored products for all the editors and press who were coming in from out of town and all over the country. I mean, it, it, was, it was extraordinarily exciting. Wow. Are you ever shocked at, you know, what it's become? Like you look at like the evolution of the front row, you know, it used to be, you know, actual buyers and now it's, you know, celebrities, reality TV stars, influencers. Are you ever shocked about this? No, I'm not really shocked. I'm, I'm impressed by it. Um, you know, it used to be, like you say, it used to be editors that you could recognize, you know, and, and, you'd get people would like shudder when they'd walk in and go, Oh my God, look who's there. It's, you know, it's Anna Winter, it's Liz Tilbaris. And then it was Glenda Bailey and it's this one and that one. And, and, you know, and, and then, then it was, and then on the other side of the row was, Oh, there's the Neiman's team. There's the Sachs team. There's the Bloomingdale's team. You know, there's the Nordstrom team. You know, it was just all the retail and you, and you recognized everybody. Now you, I, I have no idea who most of them are, but, and there were always celebrities, you know, who were, who at that time at the beginning were friends of the designer. So it was an organic kind of thing. Years later, you started to realize that designers were paying some celebrities to come and wear their clothes and sit in the front row. Um, but it became such a medium for publicity that if anybody was doing a new TV show, a reality show or a new movie, their publicist wanted them to be seen at fashion week because the pictures were taken and they were, they went on all the wire services and in all the entertainment magazines that had grown during that time. Uh, so it was a great vehicle for that. Politicians would be there in the front row. I mean, any athletes, I mean, I'll never forget a Carolina Herrera show where Venus and Serena came just after playing in the U S open. And wow. I mean, it was, monumental they came they were the last two to get into the show we held the show for them when they snuck in and walked into the venue before the show started there was a standing ovation in the venue of 1200 people it was it was extraordinary you know so there were really special moments like that with celebrities barbara streisand being there for donna karen's early shows um it, it's it's extraordinary and many of the housewives that you know so well were always coming to the shows. They were. I have a question about that in a second. I was also going to ask you, what what do you think of like the relationship between like, you know, like we mentioned Victoria Beckham, who's in this great book, you know, and like a Mary Kate, like basically celebrities who like become designers, like some have done it so well. Like, how do you feel about that? Like Kim Kardashian now with Skims? Well, I, I think some of them have really stepped up to the plate and done it brilliantly. Um, I think Victoria Beckham really proved her mettle as a designer. I don't think people expected that of her at the beginning. And I remember there's a story where the first season she put out like 10 looks in a showroom and Ken Downing, who was the fashion director at Neiman's went to see them. 
and and he called his team and said, don't walk, run and get to this showroom and buy this. Um, you know, I mean, and she's she's designing and you, you feel her presence in the collection. Um, you know, the, the, the Olsen girls, same thing. You know, I think that they really evolved into loving fashion. You know, you could see from the way they dress and look that they really have a point of view and a style. And that is conveyed through their their collections, which are unbelievably successful and unbelievably expensive. Um, uh, Kim Kardashian is another story entirely. I mean, I'm not sure that she's as much a designer as she is a marketer. And, you know, some, you know, I don't think it's she's been sitting home trying to design body fashions, but people are and she's the perfect vehicle to communicate that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. What about, you know, you mentioned reality TV, like, you know, you were on Project Runway again recently, you've been on America's Next Top Model, you were on the fashion show, the one season with, you know, your good friend, Isaac Mizrahi, when- And and Kelly Rowland. And Kelly Rowland, when like Project Runway went to Lifetime with Harvey Weinstein, like, talk to me about like the fashion show with Isaac, like how did that come about and what was that experience like? That was so much fun. I can't even, I, I really, really loved it. It's, it's extraordinary how quickly they put a season together though. You know, you, you, you watch it over a course of almost a year, yeah. you know, but all of it's done like in two weeks, you know, it's like every other day, you know, there's another episode being filmed, but I, I forget who, who called me, but it was um, the team from Bravo. And this was, as you said, project runway was, busy renegotiating their contract with Bravo and wanting more money or whatever. And they, and it was, it was holding up the, the progress of the show. And that's when Harvey Weinstein was very much producer of it all uh, with full picture. And so there was all of a sudden an opening in the market for that kind of show. So they created quickly a show called the fashion show. Um, Isaac, who's like, the best entertainer and, you know, fun to be with uh, was the host with Kelly Rowland as the judge. And and I was the third judge for the entire series. And then we would get a fourth judge in depending on the challenge. So, and I was very instrumental in getting those fourth person, you know, where there was a, just a challenge about signing coats. And I said, let's get Norma Kamali because she did the, the, the most famous, you know, down coat ever. You know, there was an, an, an episode about shoes and we got George Malcolmus, who recently passed away, who was the president of Manolo Blahnik in America. You know, there was another one when we got Narcissa Rodriguez. And, you know, so we had a great group and I really loved that. I mean, I, it's very much in my temperament to give advice and to help counsel and to want to encourage young designers to be their best. Um, so I, that was a marvelous season to do that. Would you do any more reality TV? Like, can you envision some world in which you would be back on reality TV full time? Um, it all depends on what the program is and what the subject is and how invasive it is in your life. Because it seems like it's most of the shows are very invasive, you know, and I wouldn't do a show that's wanting me to get involved and to argue with people and fight with people and, you know, throw throw glasses and you know tip tables over that's not me so in other words if Andy Cohn calls maybe you're not gonna 
pursue the Real Housewives anytime soon, Fern. I, yeah, I don't think I fit into a Real Housewives. I, you know, I don't have a big mansion to hang out in, you know, and, you know, that $11 million apartment, um, you know, it's, it's crazy how those things have, I mean, there's, there's, it's reality, but is it real? I don't know, you know, I don't know that that's really what people can relate to. I was going to say you have your house in Southampton, so that's a start. But me and a camera crew in here would be stepping over each other. Right. Well, speaking of Housewives and reality TV, you know, there were certain shows that were permanent fixtures on The Real Housewives of New York in those early days, like Pamela Rowland and Jill Stewart. Like, I kind of hold those synonymous to The Real Housewives of New York. Like, how was it? Like, how did you accommodate like a filming crew when Bravo called and said, we want to come to these shows? Yeah, and Dennis Basso always had a lot of the girls there. Totally. Um, you know, it, it, honestly, we we would register camera crews and film crews, but those kind of relationships were between designer and their media. So we we function more as a hotel with lots of rooms. The rooms being the venue, we rent them out to people, and it's up to them to invite who they want to let in. Um, you know, but we would be very careful and work closely with the designers and their PR team to make sure where the camera crews were so they didn't interfere in any of the production, you know, and you don't see them sticking, you know, a, a big arm out and covering something that gets in the way. But, you know, they were after reality TV started doing that, there were so many crews coming in with different editors and different personalities who all were doing their own thing using the fashion week venues as part of their exciting life. You know, you would always see somebody with a camera camera behind them, you know, whether it was, I don't even want to say the names, lots of different editors and people all using that experience for their, for their benefit. Um, but, you know, it all helped promote fashion week and it all, all helped make fashion week seem like, Oh my God, this is the place to be. This right. is where it's all happening. And, and it's true. It was. It was a, it was the center. You know, I say to people now being at the tents in Bryant Park is like when people talk about Studio 54, you know, you had to be there. If you weren't there, it's hard to explain what that felt like. I mean, people walked into those tents and felt like I've arrived. I'm really in the fashion business now, or, oh my God, I got in. I mean, people, you know, who clamored to get a standing room uh, space at a show, you know, the people behind well, you're behind the velvet ropes on the sides of the entrances, watching everybody come and go, watching the celebrities come in and out, you know, the models come in and out, you know, the back, the backstage was a whole other universe of people and activity and, you know, all the, all the hairdressers and makeup artists, all be, they all became stars because of the fashion week um, opportunity. And even... Yeah, I was going to say, even now, you could feel that frenzy in New York City every time Fashion Week approaches of who's getting into where and what and what shows and others, two conflicts. And like you said, like, I have to be in here in Spring Studios and it's you still feel it. Yeah, well, but when it was at Bryant Park, you know, you knew that every every taxi driver knew Fashion Week was happening. Right. You know, and every every event that mattered, everybody waited till Fashion Week to launch their new restaurant to launch their new club, to, you know, launch a new anything. Fashion Week became the, the pivot, the, the, the space, the place and time when things happened. 
you know, right. which is what helped bring so much money and revenue into the city, you know, because of Fashion Week. Right. Well, speaking of Fashion Week and Real Housewives, I know you know a few of them. So we'll do some quick, we'll do a quick round of like, what are Fern's thoughts on, we'll just start with Ramona Singer. Like, that's a great place to start. Well, Ramona is so controversial on the shows. She's hysterical. But um, I know Ramona long, long before she was a Real Housewife. She was in the fashion industry and she had a company. She was a jobber, which meant that she got like the, the lowest end of the clothing business that would couldn't sell. She would buy it all up and resell it in places, you know, so she she started in the in the garment trade, you know, and Real Housewives totally reinvented her life, you know, and and I, she's perfect fodder for the show. Was she a hustler? Because that sounds like you have to be a hustler. I mean, now she's in real estate at Douglas Elliman. Do you think that early, those early days in the garment industry, those skills can be transferred to her real oh, estate career absolutely. now? Absolutely. And I think at some point in life, almost everybody I know winds up in real estate. I mean, that seems to be the end, the end career journey. Kind of. It's like another, listen, Ramona has a reinvention story just like you and me do, yeah, right? Absolutely. What about Luann, Countess Luann? Luann's great. I mean, I love Luann. I've also known her before she was a housewife. And she was married to the, the Count, or whatever, you know, and, you know, her daughter is a terrific artist and she's got a lovely house in, in Sag Harbor that I've been to, um, you know, and I'm, I think it's great that she has totally reinvented herself into this cabaret star now. Yes. You know, traveling the country, booking you know, she, whoever knew she could sing and perform. I mean, it's crazy. And it sells out all over. She's in LA this week, all week. It's, it's, it is crazy. Apparently, yes. Very successful. What about Dorinda Medley? I, I adore Dorinda. I think she's a hoot. I love her personality. She seems, for me, seems to be one of the most grounded, level-headed people of the team. You know, she can navigate through a lot of craziness, especially when they're not drinking so much. Um, but she's fun. She comes to she comes to the shows. She came to the book launch. You know, she was she was a lot of fun being there um, when Fashion Icons Two came out. Um, I I I get I get a kick out of her. I really like Dorinda. Dorinda is funny. And finally, what about Heather Thompson? Well, I guess Heather's back now in the into the reality, into yeah. the housewives. Um, but I, when I first saw her on the show, I said, "Oh my God, I know Heather." You know, I, it was a surprise to see her on Housewives because I knew her when she was designing with Sean John. Uh, she was the designer for Sean John and a few other brands, and you know, we worked together at the, the Sean John fashion show when he was doing it at the tents. Was one of the one of those also very memorable fashion shows, you know, and we rebonded over talking about that because I ran into her at an event in New York and we were like, oh my God, Heather, Fern, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then she came to the Tommy Hilfiger and Dee talk because she worked with Tommy and knew, knew everybody there. Uh, and we, we reminisced about the Sean John show because he, it was his first show and it was in the tents and it was much anticipated as you can imagine. And the runway was a big wide runway and on the side of it were literally runway lights like at an airport huge huge floodlights that kept moving and doing stuff and 
the whole back wall was a video screen with like a, a music video playing, like really fast paced, moving cars traction. And then the, and the music was fabulous. And out came all these male models, mostly bare chested, with the most extraordinary fur coats on a fur jackets in, in bright colors, like in yellow and red and, and gorgeous. And they were dripping in diamonds diamond necklaces, diamond earrings, diamond, you know, stuff, chains hanging. Oh my God, this is like, look at how fabulous they look. And the show was a huge success. And, you know, that's, uh, Heather and I share that experience. Wow. Do you think like fashion competition shows like a Project Runway still work today? Like, you know, I think for most people you could say, okay, Christian Seriano, and you and I might know a lot of other winners, but I don't think not everyone does. Well, it's interesting that Christian went from winning that show to the humongous success he has now. And then, and for many years, he didn't want to talk about Project Runway. Um, and now he came back as the Tim Gunn, you know, and, and I think he was great on that. I mean, I watched a lot of those shows and I loved Christian's relationship to the young designers and the advice he would give them. And you know, the, the, the looks he would give them, you know, and he was, he was terrific. I might, you know, a certain generation of us might be over it, but there's always a new generation who is wanting to be a designer, wants to be in fashion. And there's something for everybody in those shows. So I think there still is an opportunity and I think there's still relevance. And I was at your Christian Seriano talk, which is also in this book, one of my favorites, just because I'm such a huge fan of Christian's. Well, I mean, he broke the mold. I mean, what he's done for inclusivity and sizes and, and dressing women of every size, I applaud him so much. You know, and that tuxedo gown he put on Billy Porter, that Amazing. opened up, the, that changed the dialogue for everybody. Everybody for men to start wearing skirts and dresses and, and feel good in, the, in their skin. A hundred percent. Well, I know you've been to many a Met Gala throughout your career, and you were recently quoted in Page Six about the Marilyn Monroe dress controversy with Kim Kardashian. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I haven't been to the Met Gala in a long time. I went when I was at CFDA, and we would always have a table and bring a bunch of designers. You know, and prior to even that, I used to go when they had the after parties where young people could afford to buy a ticket and see the exhibit and dance and then see all the hoi polloi coming out of the dinner part, you know, and, and you'd, you'd stand there and go, one day I'm going to want to be one of those people, right. you know, and one day I became one of those people, but um, I haven't gone to the gala in a long time, but um, to the point of the page six piece, uh, you know, it was interesting. I was asked what I thought about, what I thought about her wearing that dress. And I really feel strongly that that dress should have been, should be in a museum. Um, being in Ripley's, believe it or not, just doesn't kind of ring like the Metropolitan Museum or FIT's museum. You know, it, it's a tourist place. And the fact that it was loaned to her, sold to her or whatever, I don't, I don't really know the truth because there's a lot of stories floating around about that. Ripley's, you know, has, has made many comments after all this uh, press has come out. But I mean, I've seen that dress 
before at, at somebody's apartment who had a huge collection of unbelievable um, things from auctions, you know, including like the motorcycle from Easy Rider and, you know, Muhammad Ali's, you know, boxing trunks. And, and in this case, this was in an apartment in the um, Sherry Netherlands at the roof uh, or at the pier. And Marilyn Monroe's dress was there on a mannequin. And I mean, it's tiny and you could, the sequence, you could see the dress is like sheer as anything. Um, and it was odd when I saw it on Kim, it almost didn't look as sheer. And I mean, I just think it was, it was, it was wrong. I mean, it, it's, I don't know the truth to whether it was destroyed or whether the sequence fell off or whether it was ripped in the back. I thought it was funny that she had that fur piece holding it around her, her fanny the whole time, which kind of meant that she was covering up something, you know, and we all know Kim has a large booty. Yes. And, and there's no way that she was the same size as Marilyn. I mean, I'm more interested to know what diet she did to lose, you know, 13 pounds in a, you know, in two weeks or whatever it was. Um, but, you know, she got a lot of flack for it. And, and then, and then if she had a copy made to change into after 15 minutes, I mean, she could have won the copy the whole time and it still would have said it's a, an homage to Marilyn Monroe's dress. And people would have gotten that without having to wear the real one. So what happens now that there is this rumor damage? Like what happens to a dress like this now? Then? I, Ripley says it back. And I don't know if it's back on display wherever, within, wherever they display it, I guess in LA or something. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's, I think it's put the kibosh on, celebrities wearing like historic relevant clothes that that really need to be preserved i think so too is there something in your career like you've done it all is there a part of the business that you feel i haven't done this i still want to do this well you know one of the things we're working on now which i'm excited about is the series um is trying to um create a streaming series of these talks, working with uh, Jonathan Gray, who's a producer and an old friend. And uh, he's the, the man behind the movie that I has to travel, the Diana Vreeland movie. And he and the team has been assembled and they're putting together some work for the fashion icons to become something that you could stream on TV. And that I'm very excited about. And I, I hope that that all can be announced at some point soon. Um, so I'm, I'm, we'll see. Um, but that, that would be great because there's so much content. You know, all I hear is people looking for content, content. Well, hello, I've got a lot of content. I mean, these interviews are the definitive interviews of most of these people's lives. Nobody, yeah. nobody has done this. You know, I mean, Oscar de la Renta, it's one of the last interviews he did before he passed away. You know, having Andre Leontali's interview is, you know, remarkable. Um, you know, the Bill Cunningham, when Bill passed away, we replayed that interview on, on, online and let people watch it, you know, for a limited time. Um, there's so many, so many great stories in these and so much to learn from each of these talks. 
Yeah. How do you do it? My premise is that these people are not just a name on a label. You know, what was your mother like? What was your father? You know, what were your siblings like? How did you grow up? What was your bedroom like? Um, you know, that that's that's the stuff that interests me, not this collection versus that collection. Right. You know, and when you got your first order, who did you call? You know, how did you, you know, did, how much money did you need to start the business? Um, right. Those are questions that, you know, the audience, uh, you know, and I hope young people who are interested in careers in fashion and, and so forth would really listen and pay attention to. You know, Mark Jacobs talked about his third bankruptcy, you know, and I looked at the audience. I said, did you hear that? He's been bankrupt three times, had to close the business. And yet, you know, that passion doesn't go away. You still reinvent and go back and do it again. I remember asking him, do you still have the same lawyer? And he said, yep. Wow. What would people be shocked to find out about you? Oh, God. What a... What a good and bad question that is. Um, I, I don't know. I think I'm pretty much an open book. You know, I'm not, I don't really have the secret life of Fern, you know, hidden away in a, in a room upstairs with, you know, chains and belts. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very open and forthcoming. And, you know, and I'm much nicer than people think I am. You know, people have always been afraid of me. And then once they talk to me, they go, oh, my God, you're so nice. I mean, I get that all the time. And that's one of the mantras that I give out when I talk. I said, you know, what advice do you have for people? I say, be nice. You know, people want, want to work with people that are nice. You know, I mean, and even the book part, the book launch, the book signing that you were at, um, Peter Lichtenthal came with his partner, his husband, and he used to be the head of Bumble and Bumble and before that at Mac and he's retired now. And he, he bought a book and I wrote, signed it to him. And he said, you know, I have to tell you, when I was at Mac, he said, early on in my career, we were doing stuff at, at the tents and whatever. He said, you were so nice to me and so helpful. He said, you were really nice and, and treated me so nicely. He said, I'll never forget it. It meant so much to me that you took the time to be helpful. And, you know, and, you know, when I hear that from, you know, very successful people that that meant so much to them. And I, that makes me feel great. Why do you think people are shocked when they meet you in person? They say, oh, wow, she's so nice. Well, because, you know, you're, you're put up as a figurehead in, in, in industry. And sure, sometimes I could be tough because somebody has to make the decisions to, to get things to happen the right way. But, you know, people just, you know, oh, there's Fern over there, you know, oh, you know, you think we could say hello to her, you know, and then it's, oh, sure, come on over, let's take a picture, of course, let's take a picture. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very open that way, you know, and, you know, in the tents, I, I tell people this story about um, being the, putting on my stewardess face, you know, and they go, what's that? I said, you know, when I was in the tents all the time, and I'd be around the information booth or walking around, always making sure everything's functioning right um i would have my stewardess face on and they say what's that i said you know when you're on an airplane and you hear a sound and you hear something you know happen that you get nervous about yeah the first thing you do is look at the stewardess and if she's still in the aisle serving her coffee and her drinks and doesn't budge uh you think okay i'm gonna go back to my reading my magazine 
But if she drops what she's doing and runs to the front or back of a plane, you go, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. So people look at me all the time. And I said, if I'm going to be in that space and being frantic or being, you know, demonstrative or being angry or something, people look at me and see that. So I would not, I would always have my stewardess face on because I wasn't aware that everybody's like focusing on me, but I, you know, that's, that's how I try to behave in life. You know, I don't always have my stewardess face on, but in those situations I did. That's a good way to put it. How would you describe your own personal style? Um, it's, it's eclectic. Um, it's, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, for a long time, I wore maybe 40% of my clothes were from Indian designers because I was in India all the time. You know, and now I wear a lot of Lafayette 148. I love their clothes. And I wear a lot of Urban Zen. I love Donna's Urban Zen collection. Um, if I could, I'd wear a lot more Dries Van Noten. Um, you know, I, in two and a half years, I haven't worn a, a heel, you know, since COVID. I mean, I think my feet have flattened out per, and I, the thought of walking in. And I have plenty of gorgeous Manolos in my closet. And I haven't given them away yet or, you know, taken them to the real wheel yet. But, you know, I know I'll never get back my feet back in them. Uh, you know, and my style, like I think everybody's has evolved and changed, especially over the two years of COVID. You know, we just, everything became a little more casual and um, a little less constrict, constructed. And, you know, when you spend two years deciding which tie-dye sweatshirt you're going to put on, you know, now it's hard when you have to put on real clothes again that, and, and look a certain way and dress a certain way for occasions. Everything's a little looser now, right? Yeah. Final three things. Where do you see, like, how has fashion changed? Like, where do you see fashion now? And like, where do you see it going? Well, fashion is fashion and it's always changing. I mean, otherwise, none of us would be around in this industry. I mean, that's, that's the good news. It never stays the same. Um, you know, it's become a, a culture of sneakers. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I never would have dreamt in my life to see how, how that particular piece of clothing or, or accessory has taken, taken the world by storm. I mean, I, I remember when you bought a sneaker, period, end of story, sneakers. You know, they were good for tennis. They were good for walking. They were good for everything. Now there's a sneaker for every single function in your life. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're like modern art. And, you know, most people have them, I think, just display them on shelves, the people who have collections. Um, but, you know, the, everything's evolving with fashion. I mean, it's nice to see now that there is more size inclusivity in a lot of brands. Um, and now it's nice to see so many black designers being recognized and being really celebrated in the industry. I think that's new. And I think that's partially where fashion is going to be more inclusive in that respect. Um, you know, all of the gender, um, non-gender binary clothing, whatever is, seems to be part of the future of fashion, you know, stuff that men and women can wear. Um, and I think there's, I think there's a healthy future for fashion. I hope the economy doesn't keep tanking, 
you know, as it is right now. You and me both. I mean, that's the scary part because, you know, it was, I I guess we all should have known that because during COVID, when nobody was doing anything, the market was through the roof. You know, luxury spending was through the roof. Companies in the luxury market doubled and tripled their business during that time. And now we're all paying the price for that. And it's, so it'd be interesting to see if that affects change. Um, I think part of the future that I'm excited about for fashion is sustainability. And more and more people are focusing on that and paying attention to that and trying their damnedest to do something to make a difference because the apparel industry is such a, such a part of the problem. And so it really needs to correct itself. And all the younger people coming out of the fashion schools, all the kids at FIT, I mean, they're all so focused on that. And I hope that yeah. they bring more of that attention to the table and to the companies they work with. Um, it's exciting to see that happening. What about when you're not working? What does Fernalis do for fun? Well, here I am at my house in the country and I, and I like to garden. I like to cuddle with my cat Dimples, who's the most sweetest little black cat. And I'm surprised she's not here because the minute I zoom, she usually gets on the table and walks in front of me a hundred times. We've had many a cat or a dog make an appearance here. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, you know, I like to cook, especially in the country, not so much in the city. Um, you know, I'm been like everybody else I have a list a mile long on my phone of things to watch on tv and things to stream um what else do I like to do I mean I used to love going to the theater not haven't been doing that so much lately or to movie theaters so that's where the streaming has filled a gap in our lives you know I have a couple of uh, I have three gorgeous nieces that I dote on and adore um, two of them living in the New York area, one in California, and two of them have two kids each who, if you saw the book, my dedication is to them. Yeah. And they just give me so much joy, just even seeing the family feed of pictures every day that come across. That's all great and keeps you busy. Yeah. Well, here's my final question. You know, listen, you've interviewed- And, like and, I and, and just to add, and where I live on my lake, my pod of people here have really kept me, you know, functioning and alive through all of this. And it's Stan Herman, who's in the book, Stan's piece, you have to read Stan's chapter. Uh, He was president of the CFDA for like 15 years, 16 years. And uh, he's my BFF, like a few houses away. And Ivan Bart, who's the president of IMG Models, um, you know, he's right over here, you know, and a few other friends on the lake. so, you know, that's, that's all part of our, my fern off time. That's, I mean, during COVID, I could picture all of you getting together, dinner parties, wine, vodka sodas, as you say. <laughs> well, no, listen, you've had, I mean, you've interviewed 61 people. You've, you know, everyone who's anyone in this business, you're an author, you know, you've received so many awards. I don't even know where to begin. You're the godmother of fashion, you've been called. I mean, you have created New York Fashion Week, which really, I don't think anything is, you know, it's been spun off everywhere and there's nothing as iconic. Like, are you able to like step outside of yourself and say, 
oh my God, Fernales, like what a career. No, I really haven't. You know, I'm, I'm still shocked at how many people stop me or know me or if I walk down the street and I could see somebody's face look at me and go, oh, that's it? Oh, hi, you know. Or, you know, when I was just came back from my book tour with Nordstrom and went to Dallas and uh, Minneapolis and Nashville, you know, there were people at each of those events who came up to me and said, oh my God, I've been following you for so many years. You are my idol, my hero. You know, I, I follow you on Instagram. And even before Instagram, I would read and know everything you were doing. And I, that always just shocks me, you know, instead of going, oh yes, of course, thank you. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I'm very humble about that. I, I, that's not what I ever set out to do, you know, but like I said, the universe delivers, just do a good job and you're acknowledged somewhere along the line for it. And, and uh, it's been very rewarding. That's great. Well, listen, I'm waiting for volume three and we have to celebrate fashion icons too, but you know, we're all- You can get it on Amazon or Rizzoli who published the book, or you can get it at Nordstrom. So it's a yeah, great I'm part. very proud. I'm as proud of these interviews and these books as I am of having created Fashion Week, because wow. Fashion Week has come and gone, and it's not the way it was anymore. But these books are, are their history, and they they'll be around forever. And those stories are are the definitive stories. And they're so diverse, and it's just a nice coffee table book. I mean, it's a nice thing to well, put we out. tried to make it a little bit smaller this time so you can get it on your lap but not just on the coffee table this but one it's but it's heavy it is heavy but I'm, i i love a big book because like i said i've just been skipping through it but i'm gonna like literally go in order and read the whole thing so i can't yeah. wait and the pictures are all great you know the pictures that support the stories which i've asked for the shoebox under the bed you know when when we're looking for pictures i don't want you know press photos you know, I want, I want the pictures of you and your siblings and you and your folks and, you know, one, and, and those tell the story as much as what the publisher of Rizzoli said with the first book, he said, you know, it's compelling to look at, but, you know, it's beautiful to look at, but compelling to read because, you know, you read it, but the pictures also tell the story. They tie in and you do have pictures that are like really hard to get. I mean, like the Princess Diana and that's, with Sandra Rhodes. I mean, Sandra yeah. was such a fun interview. I'm like, where are these pictures coming from? So, well, listen, you have been a pleasure. You can come back anytime. Oh, maybe my pleasure to come back. I mean, we can, I, I could talk to you for hours. I'm just trying to be respectful for your time, but this book is great. I'll share all your socials and where everyone can get it. And hopefully I'll run into you in the village of South or the village of SAG this summer. Absolutely. We have to do that for sure. We'll do it. Thank you all so right. much for everything. Thank you, Dave. Take care, Fern. Bye. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, 
We're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're Behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon, because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.